The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning, happy Monday, and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high-profile public figures. After the news today, my special guest is Alan Minsky, the executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America, as well as a former program director at KPFK. Uh, Alan and I will go over today's major headlines and current events and give you some commentary, analysis, and opinion. So stay tuned. Here are some news headlines. Last week was very awful for the Biden administration. The U.S. ended its military presence in Afghanistan on Tuesday. While President Biden spoke several times this week in an attempt to spin the withdrawal, the suicide bomber who took 13 American military lives last week and those of at least 170 others, coupled with the overall chaos of the pullout, reflected very poorly on him and his administration. Take one more question. Wait, 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 wait. Let me take the one question from the most interesting guy that I know in the press. That's you. Mr. President, there had not been a U.S. service member killed in combat in Afghanistan since February of 2020. You set a deadline, you pulled troops out, you sent troops back in, and now 12 Marines are dead. You said the buck stops with you. Do you bear any responsibility for the way that things have unfolded in the last two weeks? I bear responsibility for fundamentally all that's happened of late. But here's the deal. You know, I wish you'd one day say these things, you know as well as I do that a former president made a deal with the Taliban that he would get all American forces out of Afghanistan by May 1. In return, the commitment was made, and that was a year before. In return, he was given a commitment that the Taliban would continue to attack others, but would not attack any American forces. Remember that? I'm, I'm being serious. I, no, I, I'm asking you a question. Be, uh, because before... No, 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 wait a minute. I'm asking you a question. Is that, is that accurate, the best of you or not? What? Since, since after the incident, uh, do you think that people have an issue with pulling out of Afghanistan or just the way that things have happened? I think they have an issue that people are likely to get hurt. Some, as we've seen, have gotten killed, and that it is messy. The reason why, whether my friend will acknowledge it, or has reported it, the reason why there were no attacks on Americans, as you said, from the date until I came into office, was because the commitment was made by President Trump, I will be out by May 1st. In the meantime, you agree not to attack any Americans. That was the deal. That's why no American was attacked. The Economy plagued by the coronavirus Delta variant stalled badly last month. Just 235,000 jobs were created in August, the lowest number in more than six months. 
Economists had expected more than 700,000 jobs to be created in August. The top members of the select committee investigating the January 6 riot on Capitol Hill refuted recent claims by House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy that former President Donald Trump has been cleared by the Justice Department of any role in the insurrection. The statement by committee chair, chairman Rep. Uh, Bernie Thompson and Vice Chair Representative Liz Cheney calls out McCarthy's comments where he suggested Trump played no role in coordinating the insurrection. President Joe Biden on Friday signed an executive order directing the Department of Justice and other federal agencies to conduct a declassification review of documents related to the FBI's investigation of the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks. The review could result in the release of new documents should the agencies find some that can be declassified. The move comes about a month after more than 1,600 people affected by the September 11 attacks released a letter calling on Biden to refrain from going to Ground Zero in New York City to mark the anniversary of the event unless he releases additional documents and information the government has previously blocked. Not long after that letter, the Department of Justice announced that it would review what previously withheld information or documents related to the September 11, 2001, and it can disclose to the public. A new poll released by the Public Policy Institute of California has Governor Gavin Newsom winning the upcoming gubernatorial recall election. And it's not close. Among likely voters, 39% would vote yes to remove Newsom and 58% would vote no, giving the governor a 19-point margin of victory, according to PPIC's poll. Public health officials are closely monitoring the MU variant of the coronavirus now circulating in Los Angeles County, though they say that the Delta variant remains the greatest cause for concern. Labeled as a variant of interest on August 30th by the World Health Organization, the MU variant has been identified in 167 cases to date in LA County, the County Department of Public Health said in a news release on Friday. Currently, there are 1,641 people hospitalized with COVID-19 in LA County, with 27% of them in ICU. The county reported 2,673 new cases and 37 deaths last week. The Blunt Post with Vic. Alan Minsky is the executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America. He is a lifelong activist who has worked as a progressive journalist for the last two decades. Alan was the program director at KPFK from 2009 to 2018. Before that, Alan was one of the founders of LA Indie Media. He is the creator and producer of the political podcasts for The Nation and Jacobin Magazine, as well as contributor to Common Dreams and Truth Dig. Alan is a committed anti-racist and a feminist. He is also an advocate for economic policies that address social inequality, eradicate poverty, and prioritize the interests of working and middle-class households. Good morning, Alan. Thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic this morning. How are you today? Pretty good. Great to be with you, Vic. Thanks for being on the show and giving us the opportunity to pick your brain, as they say. 
your wealth of knowledge. And uh, sort of, I wanted to go over some current events and headline news. I'm always interested in uh, your analysis and commentary on what's happening, uh, you know, starting with, um, you know, starting with a lot of things sort of coming to a head, which is, for some reason, our nation has decided that the COVID issue is sort of winding down. Uh, Ill, you know, although the Delta variant is uh, making things worse, but as a result, unemployment insurance for 7.5 million Americans expires today, and as well as the all the rent and uh, eviction that was paused for so many different states. Uh, that too is expiring, so we're sort of heading toward this disaster. And uh, I think, and you know, I'm a Democrat. Don't keep that a secret. And I voted for President Biden, but I, I kind of have an issue with him claiming. Uh, you know, he said it in July that you know he created uh, three million jobs since taking office. That is very conditional because a lot of those jobs were on hold because of COVID. And they just sort of, they came back and people started to, uh, people who were temporarily laid off were put back to work. And also, you know, there's so many other variances that I, I'm sure I don't need to tell you, such as, oh, what are these jobs? How much do they pay? Are they, you know, full-time or part-time? And, uh, you know, the bottom line, I think, is that uh, we're not out of the woods. In fact, we're probably headed toward you know, another challenging period. And yet a lot of social programs to keep the economy going and help Americans that are struggling are ending. I'll stop there. <laughs> Thank you for the question, Vic. And, and, you know, Progressive Democrats of America, which you know, I'm the executive director of, we have, a, you know, a, we support candidates with our, our independent tax structure. It's not a super PAC, folks. It's a very above board, uh, low money donation operation to support candidates. And then we have our lobbying wing, our 501c4. And of course, we are for um, the extension of the unemployment benefits and of the um, moratorium on evictions. Uh, and that these should really be leaned into, not just be uh, you know extended, but leaned into by the Biden administration on account of the fact that I think uh, either you're willfully naive or you people should recognize that we remain in a pandemic crisis, one that has disrupted the economy, disrupted the ability of people to make a living because of that in a very severe way. Uh, we all know that uh, um, really on account of the structure of the CARES Act, uh, the initial um, relief package, massive, massive relief package put out during the time when McConnell was ahead of the Senate and, and Donald Trump was president, right in uh, mid-2020, uh, that, um, boy, how long ago was that now? <laughs> it seems so crazy. God, it almost said 2019, but it was it was 2020, of course. Yeah, it was, March. It was a presidential, pre, it was pre presidential election year. And, of course, it seems almost like forever. But I think the reality is there's so many things at play here. Of course, one is the fate of the Democratic Party and, and Joe Biden's presidency and his poll ratings going down, obviously hurt by the situation in Afghanistan. But at the same time, hurt by the Delta variant. We shouldn't have any illusions about that. And um, much like uh, Bar Barack Obama coming into the presidency with uh, a real focus on um, the ending the wars that Bush and Cheney had started as a candidate, that was his focus. But, you know, he gets to office and, and his whole presidency is, of course, uh, overwhelmed by the global financial crisis at the time. Well, there's a lot of other things going on, but people really do 
I mean, it's, it's fair to say that Donald Trump was probably odds on favor to get reelected had not the COVID uh, um, pandemic hit. Um, made, yeah. I mean, against Joe Biden and the how much enthusiasm that would just be, of course, negative enthusiasm against Trump. Trump would have run on a strong economy if that had stayed going in the six months after the COVID pandemic. And it probably would have under the terms of how he defined it. And um, so, you know, he comes into the presidency, Biden, with, among everything else being equal, and a significant portion of what he is about is he's going to respond to the science and he's going to manage the COVID pandemic infinitely better than Trump has done. And he's done that in, of course, the respect for science, but the Delta variant comes around and really undermines what I think was a very popular aspect of his first months of his presidency. Right. Um, you know, not among, you know, core Democrats or progressives who are also happy about his, you know, more apparently progressive response to the economic concerns, though, as you are pointing out, those have sort of, you know, not as pronounced as we hope they, as, as the situation demands and we would hope they would be. But he, um, you know, uh, his being president, big sense of relief that he wasn't Donald Trump, but also outside of the, you know, maybe two thirds of the Republican Party that are anti-vaxxers. And remember, the Republican Party is is only you know a third of the population, a third's independent, a third's Democrat. Um, so there's a significant group of people there who maybe supported Trump's approach to it. But for the balance of the population, uh, people wanted a president who was going to be responsive to science to state-of-the-art medicine and the way this could be responded to. Big boost for Joe Biden coming in with that. And now all of a sudden, you fast forward to the present. Things aren't going very well. And of course, all of that pertains to the questions of the extension of the moratorium, the unemployment benefits, and of course, to the reconciliation bill, the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. I don't know how that will be debated because there's so many sort of ways that the opponents are going to attack it. But the people who are advocating for a really large package, one that addresses human infrastructure needs with um, a healthy infusion of money into the economy, I think the Delta variant and the extension of the pandemic should be used by advocates for a large reconciliation infrastructure bill. Exactly. They should use that point. And, the, and I do think that the Delta variant will be um, a good cause for even trying to persuade people like if you know if it's if it's argued well the the more conservative democrats who are opposed to a larger price tag on it because look the economy is simply not picking up in the way that people had thought it, it would and almost inevitably would when the pandemic was quote unquote over and people thought by now with the vaccines coming in at the top of the year that we would be there now well we're not there now in fact we seem to have a more uh, easily passed along virus um, with a lot of social and political confusion and contestation and discord around this, and of course the continued disruption of the economy. Final point, just to go directly to your question, I really don't know that anybody knows how much damage has been done to the fundamentals of the American macroeconomy by this um, pandemic. I do think it's true that there's been a further concentration of wealth there's been a further concentration of uh, real estate ownership, uh, you know, high value real estate ownership in the country. Um, I think the, the way the CARES Act was structured were very good for uh, major corporations, not good for small businesses. This is going to lead to either further monopolization and consolidation at the top of the economy. Um, and, you know, we have to find a way 
and this is straight up capitalism 101, to get all that profit profit taking from the corporations and money held by wealthy Americans reinvested back into the society. You know, it, it, there's no other way to do it. Of course, progressive taxation, higher corporate tax rates are an, an instrument that they should deploy right now and not be shy about it with the reconciliation bill. But we have to find ways to just have investment and motivate and incentivize investment uh, because that's not happening. People are sitting on massive, massive pools of wealth, um, and that's exacerbating the wealth inequality in society. And, of course, that. And the risk is that we have, yeah. we have such a slim majority in the Senate. And that could change next year. Well, we have there are definitely some strong and competitive candidates that will be running in some of the Senate races. The Senate, of course, is lined up to be should be a favorable terrain for the Democrats. Now, it's never really a favorable terrain in recent um, American history for the um, incumbent president two years into their term. Um, having said that, um, this is two Senate cycles away from 2010 when the Republicans so overwhelmed the Democrats. You know, they picked up seats in places where the Democrats traditionally had, had held Senate seats. So there's a good chance Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, for the Democrats to actually pick up seats. Those are all Republican incumbents. Um, and uh, with some senators retiring, North Carolina is also a possible pickup. And there are very few um, democratically held seats that are that vulnerable to Republican pickup this time. So the Senate, we could actually find ourselves losing the House, but getting away from the power of Manchin and Cinema and the Senate by extending out to, say, a 52-seat majority. Now, having said that, none of those states are guaranteed by any stretch. And um, a depressed Democratic base will certainly harm those races. In the House, of course, it does look bleak. And it looks particularly bleak because the Senate, under Chuck Schumer, was unable to pass legislation outlawing partisan gerrymandering. They don't, haven't done it yet. If they do it on the very first hours of when they come back on August 13th, will it be in time? Probably. But they'd have to do it right away. And I don't see that happening because it takes creating a filibuster carve-out and the introduction of a very focused bill just on partisan gerrymandering. And then the reason that it would be hard to be relevant for this election cycle. It would be, by the way, they have to redraw lines in the gerrymandered states for 2024. But once they draw the lines, they have a pretty good legal leg to stand on to say the lines are drawn. This is how they have handed this and you don't have a right to disrupt them. So in a sense, they've missed the, they've missed the opportunity. The no state has yet declared, you know, gerrymandered districts yet. But I think I'm guessing the Republicans in Ohio and Georgia and Texas, they pretty much are ready to go now in terms of announcing that. And um, that bill has to be signed into law by the president for it to be able to block the partisan gerrymandering. If partisan gerrymandering exists in those states, then the, that's just like a 10 to 12 seat advantage the Republicans have over the Democrats, maybe as high as 15. That's just not necessary if they just had gotten it together. And uh, and done what was necessary. Well, that's created Democrats yeah. is uh, they're never aggressive enough. Nothing close to what Republicans do. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, Absolutely. They're always in defense mode, and they can't get out of that and just really get things done. Where Republicans just sort of you know bulldoze themselves like a bully, 
and just uh, the way Mitch McConnell did with the Supreme Court. It's, it just was nuts. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's Donald Trump using the Justice Department as his, you know, criminal defense attorney's law firm, you know, with uh, Bill Barr. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting Democrats do similar things, but even with what we have, lawfully be a little bit more aggressive. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jurami, and you are listening to my interview with Alan Minsky, the Executive Director of Progressive Democrats of America. No, it's a crazy thing because, um, you know, the partisan gerrymandering is, is literally just trying to make it fair <laughs> because there are there are 31 states where um, the state legislature controls the districting process. There are 19 states where they don't. The 19 states are overwhelmingly Democratic states, so it's really true. The Democrats play fair. The Republicans cheat, certainly on this front. Right. In the past, we know the Democrats used to cheat more. Yeah. Well, the evolution of the Democratic Party has been to try to create these things as balanced and fair, as we have in California, an independent commission. That's actually in the legislation in the For the People Act. Um, nobody thinks, by the way, that you get independent commissions set up before 2024, but there are ways to do it fairly now without independent commissions to set the districts. It's late in the game. Candidates do have a right to know what district they're running in, but my word, they have to get that done immediately. Let me um, ask you this, and then we'll move on to the next topic. In terms of uh, unemployment and the moratorium for the rent and all that, do you see any action from the Biden administration? Um, well, what happened, unfortunately, is that the Supreme Court ruling uh, takes it out of the hands of the administration. So that is very analogous to the right. Pennsylvania ruling that informs how they proceed with partisan gerrymandering. Um, basically, a court around partisan gerrymandering said, well, you can't. Right now, partisan gerrymandering is illegal, but you can write a federal law. You have to pass a federal law. So it's pretty much clear what you have to do. If you go to Congress, Congress has to pass a law, then it's a law signed into law by the president. Same with the eviction moratorium. The court signaled that the Congress has to take action. And so Maxine Waters is uh, preparing legislation to introduce immediately. Mm -hmm. But my word is all. See, right now the Senate, Schumer has the space on September 13th to address voting rights. Right now the pen for the writing of the reconciliation bill is in the House committees. So Waters is going to have to fight against all that's going on there to get this done, to get it done in a way that will get through the courts. And uh, again, they're not back until the, I think the 13th or the 20th of the House even. It's actually the full House, I think it's the 20th. So boy, yeah, what a mess. That's going to be a tough one. Yeah, expect to see, though, Cory Bush and Maxine Waters in a a partnership on that kind of lead to get as much attention. Now on the unemployment there is, of course, so that is the, the the president can act on that independently. And yet, as of to, as of as of today, we really have to see a pressure campaign jumpstart there. Yeah, I think uh, for the unemployment, he's basically not taken any steps. He said mm-hmm. that he's just sort of not going to push for it. Pressure campaign time, indeed. Yeah. So let's go to Afghanistan because there's so much. Uh, there's so much contradictory perceptions about what happened. I mean, there are, pe- there are those that say uh, we should have done this a long time ago. No matter when we did it, it was going to get ugly. 
Um, President Biden um, took that chance, had the courage to do it. And of course, uh, things always go wrong. And then there are those that sort of go deeper and say, well, maybe it's right. We should have left Afghanistan, but the pullout, the logistics was, you know, disastrous and, uh, um, you know, it resulted in so many people dead and just chaos and all of that. And we left uh, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of weaponry to the Taliban. <laughs> uh, what do you think about uh, our sort of pullout from Afghanistan? Um, yeah, well, so, you know, apparently some of the weaponry, you know, really does have um, the munitions component, you know, is very specific. And so how they're going to get munitions for some things or they're just going to have a bunch of scrap metal in some cases. Um, and, um, yes, it was a mess, but I, I also think I got quite a lot of sympathy here for Biden. A lot of people who've been defending him, you know, Michael Moore and, uh, uh, a number of other people I've heard, uh, give full throated defenses of him have said that, uh, um, you know, losing a war is always messy as, as a, you know, uh, retreat and the end of wars go. This is tragic that there was a suicide bombing at Kabul airport. But uh, pretty quite a low, a low, you know, tragedy count uh, compared to other ends of wars, certainly across history, uh, which are always messy things. Um, yeah, clearly though, and the other reason I have sympathy though is that there's just been so much misinformation provided, and um, it is a shame that the Afghanistan papers that were produced by the Washington Post in December 2019 didn't get more traction, such that the public and maybe even the Biden administration. We're more alert to just how much deception has taken place over the 20 years from military leaders. And the deception, it's quite clear from those papers, is not just the American public. That's, of course, the case. But the president itself, the president itself, getting uh, you know direct misinformation and misreports from military leadership. Um, you know, so those are published in 2019. So, yes, the Biden administration should be on top of that, uh, that element and that factor. Um, but it goes towards, um, you know, that certainly the Afghanistan papers are clearly documents that show we really did, did need to get out of there. And um, and eventually it, it came down to sort of pull the Band-Aid moment off. You know, no more, no more excuses. I mean, clearly um, we all now know or learned or relearned the details. Um, I think it's a very, very tragic around Kabul. And I think it is true. That, you know, even more than during the Soviet period, where there's a huge divide between Kabul and the rest of the country, some of the other cities in the rest of the country, as we all know now, relearning the details of Afghanistan. But in the American period, I think Kabul was the one place where we really saw a sort of further advancing of, say, the expectations young people have culturally, socially for the world that they've been living in. It's got to be unbelievably terrifying. Um, and, um, it's something that I do hope um, we as Americans, because we really have accountability to so many uh, millions of people in, in Afghanistan that we don't lose sight of what's going on there. Already, I do have to say, though, I think where we can see the diminishing of coverage is just happening at such a rapid rate over the last week. Yeah. It's stunning. And, and um, you know, I do think the Republicans will probably try to make a Benghazi thing out of this, especially as we go into the midterms. Yeah. But um, but it, it is tragic that it's going away. And uh, I you know, only have just incredible solidarity for the people in Afghanistan. And, you know, 
of course, you hope for a less savage Taliban, but there seem to be almost mm-hmm. no checks and balances in place to to create that dynamic. And, uh, it was um, interesting watching their sort of PR campaign right. a couple of weeks ago when they sort of said, oh, everyone gets amnesty. We want everyone to come back to work and, you know, we want to keep their rights and such. And I thought, hmm, they've hired a good uh, publicist. Of course, that wasn't the title. But, um, yeah. And then uh, then the reality of, of when you actually hear from individuals and what's happening to them from women to LGBTQ to religious minorities. It's a whole other story. Let me ask you this. Um, Something mm -hmm. that I think it's not talked about in our society, I think some people are even a little shy about it, is in my my opinion, a lot of others, the winner of this 20-year disaster was the military-industrial complex, the $2.26 trillion that was spent out of U.S. taxpayer money and who benefited from that, the corporations, the, the contractors, um, you know, the Halliburtons of the world. Yeah, they're pretty, they're pretty upset with Biden, aren't they? Um, <laughs> um, you know, but they're, you know, they, they, the way that it's getting responded to is, uh, I know there's been a lot of pressure up on Capitol Hill to even put more money into the military budget going forward as, hey, look, we we, we obviously needed more because we lost, so it was another $25 million. There's a push for that on top of what was already an increased budget um, and a slower pace of increase in the Trump administration. But if you look at what the military budget was when Obama left, and of course Trump pumped it up, and then Biden adds a little bit more onto it. Why exactly is the military budget larger than 2016 in 2021, right. uh, especially when we're ending a war? It, it doesn't... Uh, it, 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 of course, the fact that it doesn't make sense only means that it makes sense, given everything we know about um, the military contracting lobby, et cetera. And, um, um, you know, one of the things I think that's, that's also important to point out about this, though, is um, if you look at, um, you know, the, the alliances uh, behind the Taliban and the historical background of the Taliban, um, you know, and I hope... This is a subtext to why Biden left. There are things about Biden's foreign policy that I don't like, but if it is a decentering of the Middle East, um, that, that is, that is really informed by, uh, having oil, um, and fossil fuel production, have the United States, you know, really sort of have the, the leverage to control and have sort of prime access to the Saudi Audi, uh, uh, oil fields is no longer the central focus of, of <laughs> global strategy for the United States. That's a good thing. Uh, and in particular around climate change, it's a good thing. In fact, of course, what we advocate for at PDA is a big transformation of U.S. foreign policy, of course, a downscaling of the military budget. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jurami, and you are listening to my interview with Alan Minsky, the executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. It's really sad because, you know, as an Armenian American, I was really excited that uh, President Biden uh, was the first president in 106 years to recognize the Armenian genocide. But then a week later... Uh, he and uh, Secretary Blinken decided to lift uh, Section 907 of the Freedom Act and continue to uh, to to aid Azerbaijan. Mil- 
send a military aid to Azerbaijan over 100 million a year. Uh, a nation that's you know has more oil and gas than well most nations in the Caspian, and right. uh, justify it as oh well Azerbaijan says they're going to use it just to secure their borders and uh, and such, which is you know absurd. We Azerbaijan has been on a campaign of a genocidal campaign. Uh, right. on people of the Armenians of Artsakh, known as Nagorno-Karabakh, and continues to do so, and yet we are placating to Azerbaijan. You know, oh, again, this is, this is, right, yeah. right, and th th but this goes to, it's, an, it's a perfect follow-up to, to my point, which has been this coddling of, of um, our oligarchies, right, the ones allied with our, our meaning the U.S. government, not yours and mine, um, you know, that we've coddled these countries. And, um, and again, if we can start moving away from that, because of course, the Saudis' relationship to Afghanistan, they were always really the money behind the Taliban. Right. And they were working with Pakistan to develop these madrasas where the Taliban came out of these uh, madrasas in the western part of Pakistan, even though they're Afghan nationals. They'd go there, they'd be inculcated in a very radical Wahhabist um, uh, variation of Islam. And part of it was because this is the way the Saudis were taking their internal dissent from even more radical Wahhabists and sending them out to the madrasas in Afghanistan. And um, again, if us pulling out of Afghanistan is almost sort of like, okay, we're going to, we're going to back away from this. But, you know, that's very troubling about the money to Azerbaijan, uh, um, um, to Baku's the capital, right? Yeah. Oh, right. And of course, there are huge oil fields around there. Um, and um, it's a big, uh, yeah, oil um, industrial production area in the world. And uh, these are things that we have to find a way to um, marginalize, not lift up. But the United States still has. That, yeah. You know, you had Azerbaijan and Turkey got together last year and unleashed this genocidal assault and ethnic cleansing. That right. killed almost five thousand Armenians in twenty twenty. Right, and we have major organizations from Human Rights Watch to Amnesty International to the UN with proof saying that they used uh, illegal and banned weapons, they committed crimes against humanity and war crimes, and they continue it. And yet, uh, you know, Secretary Blinken tweets out, uh, Turkey is a major ally for the U.S. And we appreciate and are grateful and just thinking how Turkey shouldn't even be in NATO. Right. I mean, right. you know, what Turkey did is is not in line with NATO's interests, at least, or not, I shouldn't say interests, NATO's uh, principles, per se. Turkey has gone rogue and is just... You know, it's been right. creating all kinds of problems from Iraq to uh, Syria and even Egypt and Libya and even Yemen. Uh, right. And yet we placate to these. Right. And hor horrible, horrible treatment of the, um, again, I forget the name of the people there the in Kurdish. northern. Yeah, right. The Kurds. Terrible. People. I mean, right. they're right. literally ethnic cleansing the Kurds. They have right. been for decades. Right. Um, you know, Kurds are, are being ethnically cleansed in Turkey, in Syria, in uh, right. Northern Iraq, Syria, too, right? except mm -hmm. the last few years, it's been sped up by Erdogan's efforts, and the world turns a blind eye. It's just, uh, 
No, it's it's such a tragedy too, and you point to it well because you just pointed out two um, two peoples, two nations that uh, certainly within the Kurds, I know there's some very progressive political formations, and be very easy for us to be just supportive of the Armenians against the government of Azerbaijan and Turkey, and then similarly with the Kurds. But that's not where the United States foreign policy has been, and it has been resource driven. Well, and yeah, of course, I we mean, get doesn't have much natural resources to offer anyone. Right. Uh, you know, so there's no oil. It's a country of three million. It's not a big right. market for European goods as Turkey is. Right. Um, so I, I, I've been disconcerted with President Biden. I thought it's great that you recognize the genocide, but do you realize that you're funding a second right. genocide? Do you right. realize that that's exactly what you're doing if you really get blunt about it? That you're funding an ongoing genocidal campaign right, from a government that completely has funded the um, movement against recognition of the genocide for ever since it happened. Yeah. There's the Turkey, Turkey government. Well, yeah. Turkey. And, and, the, and the Turkish government is also, by the way, one of the leading governments in the world in the sort of Steve Bannon worldview of, you know, you get elected into office and then you dismantle democracy and you become an authoritarian uh, yeah. strong man. Leader. They have, they have and, more journalists right. in jail than any other nation. Um, right. And it's a, it's a major country. It's a bigger economy than, say, Hungary. Um, probably a bigger economy than the Philippines. Much bigger. And uh, now they're building a, a replica of the Pentagon. Right. And also what's a massive, massive, massive uh, palaces, right? Yeah. For the, for the head of state. You know, it's outrageous. That's a great point taken. And, you know, we are we are doing a thing at PDA where we're calling for a new uh, visions for a progressive U.S. foreign policy. And certainly, um, while I don't think we'll be looking too much at specific alliances around the world, but clearly this would be a great example of, of foregrounding, seriously foregrounding human rights, prioritizing human rights and justice, protection of the vulnerable versus uh, you know, alliances built around the relative power of the of the state as a geopolitical chessboard game and resource. So, you know, we're calling for that, and um, we'll be doing that in the coming months. And you just you just uh, said something. <laughs> I interviewed um, Senator. I won't mention whom. And I was uh, well. It's you know he's very supportive of the plight of the Armenians of Artsakh and Armenia in general sort of stuck between these big powers, the power struggle, the geopolitics. There's Russia involved that wants troops on the ground in Armenia because they want to be close to the Iranian border and all of that. And he said, he said, honestly, actually, no, it wasn't a senator. It was a member of, it was a congressperson. And uh, he said, Vic, the way the Biden administration is looking at Armenia is on a broader geopolitical map and a chess, basically, a chess game. And in this chess game, a tiny country like Armenia, even though it has, uh, it has, you know, it's, it has everything on its side in terms of the truth inside, in terms of, you know, its sovereignty. But in the chess game, uh, you're dealing with powerful nations like Russia and, uh, Azerbaijan and Turkey and a few others that have an interest in the region. Right. And also, I think uh, very recently, the um, Armenians, for those of you who are lifelong leftists, I think uh, elected one of the most progressive and left uh, governments in the world, right? Well, yeah. In um, 2018, 
right. uh, 2018, uh, it was the first time that a sort of a non-oligarch, uh, right. a young journalist, very idealist, um, is the first truly democratic uh, election that happened. It was a velvet revolution um, that uh, finally toppled the the system. Um, right. The system that was sort of a what was left of the Soviet regime, the Soviet-style uh, governing. But, but, but my understanding, too, is that, and I might be wrong here, but I think I'm correct, unlike many of those, which, again, are always good things because we, you know, obviously Putin has sort of, in Eastern Europe in general, you see a sort of, you know, democracy still there on paper, but it's <laughs> becoming stretched to believe these things are honest democracies. You get these people in power of state forever. And yes, they do tend to have roots and having been still of a generation where they were in the Communist Party and they sort of were in coordination with the oligarchic class, whether it's in Poland, Hungary, Russia, whatever. And I believe your Velvet Revolution was not supported directly by the U.S. State Department in any active way. And it really was a was a autonomous people's movement. It was, it was definitely an autonomous movement. Uh, it's hard to... It's hard to assess. There's so much. There's so much that's a mystery, and it's not very transparent. That doesn't really allow you to have a um, a closer look of what the realities are. But Russia right. has definitely been playing all sides. Right. I hate that term, but they're doing no. I mean, that was my that was my sense too. Is that they were they were hedging? Yeah, because they wanted to. They they were so their their primary commitment was to maintaining an alliance for the yeah, geographic territory. When Artsakh was attacked last year, you know, in forty four days, like almost five thousand people were massacred. Russia's response was, "Well, Artsakh is not internationally recognized as part of Armenia because it's a sort of a breakaway autonomous region, and our uh, our treaty with Armenia is that we will protect Armenia if Armenia proper is." attacked. Well, ever since the ceasefire in November, Azerbaijan keeps <laughs> uh, coming into Armenia, Armenia proper. And yet Russia is uh, you know, not doing anything about it because of its own self-interest. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jurami, and you are listening to my interview with Alan Minsky, the Executive Director of Progressive Democrats of America. You know, and this, and this speaks to, you know, in terms of U.S. foreign policy, and this even goes back to the operation of the government, and, and you know, mysteries about the, you know, the, the sort of like thinking of the Democratic Party. All the way back to that, which is that, you know, if we're if we're going to talk about being a democratic society in the United States of America and also about being a democratic society in the 21st century, because we shouldn't be um, naive about the fact that there are a lot of crises right now around the world, 21st century crises that, you know, I think people around the world and peoples around the world are going to look at the way that the Chinese Communist Party responds to it. And, uh, and the way the United States democracy sometimes seems unable through, uh, you know, its uh, congressional log jams, its political infighting, to have anything like the capacity to respond directly to these things. We really need to uh, really understand that crisis of democracy in the United States and address it to be fully supportive, small D Democrats in the country. But you look at foreign policy uh, everywhere around the world where the United States is operating, 
and almost none of the population knows anything about it. And it's not because, yes, of course, a big aspect of his life is very complex in the domestic United States. The population is wrapped up in living their lives. They don't have time to look into it. But also because the information is just not available. And you see it from the Afghanistan papers. This is a huge government expenditures around foreign policy that preclude, again, us having a much more equitable society in the United States. All the things we want to see happen domestically are more difficult to fund because we have all this funding for foreign policy. And it's opaque. And I think we've become a society in which the public is so distrustful about the information that's shared when they try to hack, when they try to understand how things are operating. So there's there's a lot of work we have to do to um, yeah. to build up a democratic society, build back up a democratic society. And we shouldn't have any illusions. I, mean, I make that reference to the Chinese Communist Party. And yes, they can do high-speed rail. But who on earth wants to be in a situation where there's anthropogenic climate change and the governments are unaccountable in terms of providing honest information? Okay. The United States of America, we have trouble getting honest information, but we get it. We have completely independent a scientific community, for instance, here in the United States of America. Single-party states, totalitarian societies, that can never be trusted. We have to do things like build up journalism here, do the hard work of reestablishing democratic processes in America so that they're fully healthy and we have accountable government. That's what the United States does supposedly stand for and has stood for, at least on paper throughout its history. And um, we have to get back to rebuilding and strengthening those aspects in our society in a serious way. And Alan, you wonder why people want you to run for public office? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, again, I think with the, with the role I have right now, again, ED of PDA, I think I can, I can make a large contribution without having to for sure. have the burdens for of public sure. office. Yeah, I can't believe um, that we're almost out of time. Uh, we were going to talk about a couple of other things, but um, instead I'd like to ask you if there's something you want to add or... Yeah, last well, time. I mean, go, going all the way back to the domestic political issues right now, um, I think um, these next few weeks are going to be very important. I do think that the size, just the final number of the reconciliation bill is, is hugely important. I've written about its relationship to, you know, how the American economy has been structured since Ronald Reagan. And of course, yes, this infrastructure bill, even though it's called an infrastructure bill. We do understand that the pandemic is sort of playing into why there even is a possibility of this much progressive fiscal spending. But it is progressive fiscal spending. Other than the CARES Act at the start of this pandemic, we haven't seen anything like this since Reagan was president. And it's the reintroduction of a strategy uh, that allows elected officials, federal elected officials, the most powerful institution in our society that remains the U.S. government, to address the endemic crises that we face within the domestic United States, whether it be health, education, poverty, wealth inequality, uh, you know, <laughs> mental health, homelessness, um, all across the board, all the things that are failing so much for so many people in our society. And the market has not proved capable of addressing those things. This is not to negate the operation of the market. It generates a ton of wealth for America. But the, we have to be honest about what it doesn't adequately address. And this bill reintroduces into American politics um, the operation of fiscal spending. And I'll, I'll just say two things to end. Um, if it does pass and there's not heavy inflation, which I don't think there will be, there's inflation now because of supply chain issues. And there'll be inflation as we force the price of oil up if people keep driving cars. But other than those two matters, there's not much inflation yet. And then, you know, it does do American treasury bonds 
remain the default investment across the world. They absolutely are right now. There's no sign whatsoever that their popularity for everyone around the world is diminishing in any way. In fact, there's, there's much turbulence as there is in the world. They remain the most popular asset and safe asset in the world. As long as that's the case, the fiscal spending needs to be introduced as an instrument to improve our lives here in the United States. And to get that going, we need this bill to be as large as possible. And we'll be fighting about that. It's going to be a crazy month. Um, this is all supposed to be done and written in the House by September 27th. And, um, you know, we just uh, hope it all goes through and it's as good as it can be. And that's one thing the PDA will be really focused on. And again, it's that long-term idea that this breaks with the logic of what people call neoliberalism or, you know, Reagan slash Clinton economic politics. And that's really important for the welfare of the American people. So that's what I would end. Well said. Thank you so much. Alan, how do, how do people get in touch with you? Maybe perhaps PDA's website? Yeah, our website is simply pdamerica.org, pdamerica.org, and um, info at pdamerica.org. Um, and then you, I know we didn't get to the recall. Obviously, PD <laughs> as an organization supports voting um, a no on the recall. Um, Absolutely. And, and, then, and then really demanding of governing somebody follow through on his progressive commitments. Uh, once sure. he uh, stays on his government. So thank you, Vic. It's great sure. talking with you. Yeah. Thank you, Alan. That was an uh, incredible amount of information and wisdom uh, shared. I really appreciate it. Hope to talk to you again soon. Okay, great. Thanks, Vic. Um, and I'll send me, if you can, uh, just text me or something when it's up online, and, and I'll share it with everybody at PDA. Uh, I definitely will. That was Alan Minsky, the Executive Director of Progressive Democrats of America. Uh, who has been an integral part of KPFK for the last two decades. Uh, and he has a wealth of knowledge and always good to talk to him. Thank you, Alan, for being on the show this morning. And I hope to uh, chat with you again soon. Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this show would not be possible. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. Tune in next Monday at 6 a.m. for another episode. For more information, please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jarami, at V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. Thank you. The Blunt Post with Vic.